Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm Wayne Stacy, your host today, uh, the Executive Director for our BCLT. Today we're going to discuss the Lifespine case from the Seventh Circuit. It's a ruling upholding a, a preliminary injunction in a trade secret case. And we have one of the nation's leading trade secret litigators with us today, Tate Graves from Wilson Sonsini. Uh, Tate, thank you for, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to, to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. Happy to be here. Well, so I want to want to start with kind of this fundamental proposition that comes in this case. And, and that's that, you know, you, you hear a lot of times people say that trade secrets and patents are completely incompatible. And this is a, a circuit court case that that shows otherwise. So can you tell us just a little bit about that incompatibility issue and, and what we should take away from this case? Sure. You know, at its most fundamentals, we all know that once you patent something and it's released into the public domain, it can no longer be a trade secret. And when we stop and reflect that every patented invention begins its life as a trade secret, but once it's published, uh, it either is a failed patent and a failed application or an issued patent it's public and it's no longer a trade secret. That's very simple and I think people understand that. But what gets lost in the noise sometimes and what Lifespine and the Federal Circuit are reminding us is that just because you release a lot of information into the public domain, whether by patents or whether by marketed products, it doesn't mean that you waive trade secret protection over other details and other information that you haven't released. So even a broad release into the public domain doesn't mean that you waive your rights over other information that you've kept confidential. Well, when you, when you read this case, you, at least I'm inclined first to, to focus in on some, some comically bad facts that, that the court really, really highlighted. But this, this case is really about more than, than a bad actor. Uh, there's a lot of good law and a, good, a lot of good lessons in here. So if we look past the parties and, and some of the the alleged bad acts, you know, what, what can we, what can we learn about trade secrets? You know, you're, you're right. The facts here look pretty bad reading the order and reading the docket and the different filings here. But if we back away from the actual parties and we back away from the actual facts, there are some structural questions about trade secret law that are latent in the federal circuit's opinion that I think are important. What happened here essentially is that the plaintiff was able to get injunctive relief even though it had disclosed a great deal of information about its product into the public domain on the argument that it had measurements and specifications that nonetheless remained trade secrets, even though so much had been disclosed. Now, that's not a surprising ruling. That's black letter trade secret law and totally unsurprising. But what's structurally interesting here is that in a trade secret case at a 10,000 foot level, uh, if you're going to show that you've still got trade secrets, notwithstanding releases into the public domain, you're going to need to identify those so that the defendant can test whether that information was published. Uh, we see here some information that some of the measurements and details were based on public information, that the plaintiff had started out its process by looking to public information. Backing away from the facts and looking at trade secret law in general, it's a little surprising that the federal circuit didn't probe or ask whether the trade secret claims had been specifically identified in the trial court. And again, maybe the facts were so bad that they didn't need to do that here. And maybe in every case they don't. But in the average trade secret case out there, Wayne, 
if a plaintiff is proceeding on a theory that they've got some narrow information that's not public, generally speaking, they're going to need to identify that to get injunctive relief, to get into discovery, or to get any, any kind of sort of merits uh, ruling. So we would expect in a normal case to see battles over trade secret claim identification in the lower court and some observation or acknowledgement by an appellate court that claims had been identified. Well, in this particular case, you know, it, the injunction was upheld. Um, you don't see a lot of discussion at the circuit court level of the, the injunction, but I know you, you'd taken a look at it. And, and what should we be thinking about this broad versus narrow uh, language and trade secret definition when it comes to injunction? And how did that play out in this case? Well, we want to back away from the facts here. Like you said, there's some pretty bad facts here that are unique and different uh, that the court relied on in its ruling. But again, if we think about trade secret law at a higher level, generally speaking in federal court under Rule 65D, there's decades of case law suggesting that an injunctive order in the trial court needs to identify the specific trade secret claims at issue. And maybe they do that under seal, so it's not public. But the idea is that a defendant shouldn't be at risk of contempt uh, because the order is so broad that they don't know how to comply. And again, under these facts in this case, maybe that doesn't matter. But generally speaking, you would expect an injunctive order to be more specific uh, about what it's identified. The order here was fairly broad. And again, maybe that's justified by the fairly unique and unusual facts in this particular case. But in a general trade secret case, Wayne, you're gonna expect a preliminary injunctive order to have some level of detail about what the trade secret claims are. And many circuits around the country, the 11th, the 2nd, the 9th, have held over the decades that that needs to be the case. Well, so if, if you get a kind of a vague injunction with this much public information uh, out there and you know the, the patent sitting out there, how, What's the next step for re properly reverse engineering? If you wanted to do it the right way, what are the options available to someone? You know, it is a fascinating question because when you look in the facts of this case, the affiliate is accused of passing information to its corporate parent uh, to enable an illegal version of reverse engineering and study of information. It only begs the question, how would the parent company do this the right way beyond the obvious of just not accepting information from their affiliate not being involved in helping someone breach a contract. You know, how do companies go about doing proper reverse engineering, competitive intelligence and that sort of thing? You know, a lot of companies are engaged in competitive intelligence and reverse engineering. And usually they do that under policies and guidelines where employees have rules that they need to follow. So they make sure that they're not breaching people's contracts, that they're relying on study of marketed products that they obtain on the open market uh, that they study and make educated guesses about to try to understand how the parts were manufactured. And sometimes that's putting them under microscopes. Sometimes that's using different chemical testing with the metals to make good guesses about, for example, what alloys were used in the manufacture. So there's a, certainly a path that companies can take to do proper reverse engineering. Again, backing away from the, the, the facts uh, of this case, which do look pretty bad. Well, and I think one of the things that really caught me about this is that the, the plaintiff had a, a nice set of layered protection. So you're talking about the reverse engineering. It's possible during the reverse engineering, you would you know, plow straight into the, the patent. Uh, but when you really look at it, there's a patent claims, there's trade secret claims, and then there's a pretty robust set of contract 
obligations. Um, so it seemed like the, the original manufacturer was doing what they needed to do. Yeah, it looks like they were thoughtful, Wayne, here and how they put their contract together because, you know, it's normal in a business-to-business contract that you would have for a software contract an anti-decompilation clause that says thou shalt not decompile. With hardware, you would have a no reverse engineering clause. So that's pretty standard. But they went a little bit further here and they had their distributor agree that it was a fiduciary to them. That's unusual. A lot of business contracts will disclaim a fiduciary relationship. So smart move by whoever put this contract together, uh, because that uh, when someone's a fiduciary, that only heightens their duties to you. Uh, and courts, of course, will view that favorably to you when they're assessing the other party's contract uh, conduct. So certainly an interesting contract term. It's a little bit unusual. And as you put it, added a layer to this decision that helped the plaintiff. Well, this, this is kind of the, the bonus question. I don't know that it impacted the, the preliminary injunction that much, but at the end of the, the opinion, there's buried this, this paragraph about prices as trade secrets. Uh, what, what should we take away from that? You know, that's one of the philosophical mysteries of trade secret law, because courts have danced around this for decades, that some seem to lean in the direction that prices shouldn't be trade secrets. Some seem to suggest that they are like this one in its single paragraph. No one that I know of has really grappled, though, with the fundamental issue of is a price by itself someone's intellectual property to the degree that they could stop, for example, a customer from going to a competitor and saying, hey, Acme Company will sell this to me for $1. Can you beat that price? Can you give it to me for 99 cents? Is that an IP violation? Or is allowing someone to claim IP in their price interfering with nor- normal market operations? So obviously the federal circuit didn't need to grapple with that here, nor did the trial court. It's kind of an afterthought uh, to the main part of the case, but it's a lurking issue that we see in trade secret case law that's really never been dealt with adequately that I know of by any court around the country. And it's fascinating because it's right at the nexus of what is fair competition? How do we want markets to operate? And what are the limits of intellectual property? Well, it'll be interesting to see if we can talk about this case again in a year. You know, this was just the preliminary injunction. Um, we'll see if, it's, if it goes to trial and if we get to see any more of these, these facts. But as it stands, it's a wonderful reminder of kind of a, just a basic rule of trade secret law that just because a whole lot is out there in the public domain, it doesn't mean that a party doesn't still have protectable trade secrets. Well, t- thank you for your, your time this week. I appreciate you you're sharing your expertise with us. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. Appreciate it.